When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is the Goldilocks camp getting too crowded? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Mike Alfred, Managing Partner at Alpine Fox. Hi, Mike. How are you? Great, Maggie. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Struggling with a little bit of the beginnings of a cold, but we're going we're gonna to power through. Um, so this is the first time we've done a show together. I think it's your first time on the, the Daily Briefing, uh, our, our end-of-day Daily Briefing. So why don't you give us a little overview of your approach at Alpine Fox? Sure. And Alpine Fox just started trading literally two weeks ago. Oh, so it's congrats. A, it's a culmination of a 20-year process of learning and envisioning, basically, but uh, I'm finally operational. Uh, but I started trading stocks in my Stanford dorm room in the late 90s. So I was just trading penny stocks, tech stocks, basically anything that I could find that was was moving. I was a history major, but I would wake up early and just trade. Um, so I've been managing my own money for almost 25 years now, even though I'm a relatively young young person still. Uh, but I didn't start a fund until uh, now because I didn't see a great opportunity to do that. Because what I really want to do is long-term unconstrained value investing. And you know, value investing has been deeply out of favor for more than a decade now. It turns out if you print a bunch of money and hold interest rates down near zero uh, and basically allow index funds to proliferate uh, widely, there's very few people left that are actually doing discerning uh, valuation work on companies. And so that's what Alpine Fox is all about. It's it's a long-term value fund, take concentrated positions in equities primarily in healthcare, energy, staples, and financials. But uh, probably the, the kicker, though, is that I'm going to have a lot of Bitcoin uh, in the fund. I view Bitcoin as a long-term value investment. It's not a popular view today, but I think it will be in five or 10 years from now. <laughs> and let the tweets begin. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that. So it's interesting, your comment about the timing of the fund and how it was impossible do you see, obviously, because you've started the fund, you see an opportunity, but do you think an era of more active management is coming back? 100%. That was one of my kind of five bullet points in my memo uh, when I raised the, the seed capital to start the fund. Um, and I think, you know, it's, again, not a popular opinion because so many people want to go pure index. Uh, but it turns out, again, that if monetary conditions are harder and rates are higher, um, then you will see more dispersion in the returns of different assets across industries, across sizes, across uh, geographies. And so I think there is a real opportunity for somebody who's thinking deeply about markets and has a longer term time horizon. I mean, everybody says they have a long term time horizon, but as you know, uh, people tend to change their portfolios every single year and they turn over their entire portfolio often in the same year. And so when somebody like that tells me they have a long-term perspective, I sort of chuckle uh, to myself. To me, long-term means don't put something in the portfolio you don't want to own for five or 10 years. 
Right. right? And that's kind of an old school view. It's more like a Buffett or an icon in terms of, uh, of strategy. But I think that style will be coming back into favor uh, because index funds are largely just making really naive uh, allocation decisions um, that don't adjust for valuation at all. That's so interesting. Uh, and and I, I think particularly we've seen just for, for people who are uh, listeners every day, we, we know we've talked about this. Almost everyone that's come on has said, this is a tricky market now. This is one of the toughest mm-hmm. markets they've been in. There are mm-hmm. a wide range of probabilities uh, and they're having to be, we've heard, be tactical, be nimble. We don't have any major themes. We're, you know, we're, we're going to really uh, protect ourselves because things are so changeable. It's really hard to see into the future. Is, is, and you're saying that, is that a benefit to active management? It, it depends on what your time horizon is. Mm. I'm a point to point investor. So I'm really concerned with what will be the price of some of the assets I'm buying today in three, five, seven years from now. And so I don't have to be so concerned about every short term gyration, every little uh, post fed volatility tantrum going on, because it doesn't really factor in to what I view as the fundamental value of some of the assets that I'm trying to acquire in three, five, or seven years from now. Um, and so, yes, I, I imagine if I had to worry about next month or next quarter, because my investors are going to get a statement. And that statement is going to stay on down 5% or 7% because of I was uh, you know, flat-footed going to the Fed meeting or whatever. I assume that's how some people think about it. I really don't do that at all. Um, and so I'm just looking at over three, five, seven years, uh, what can I own that I think will compound at an above, uh, a sort of above mean type of return with lower than, than normal volatility over that period. And so uh, I think there's a lot of things like that now. They're not necessarily things you can hold if you're worried about what your investor is going to think about your performance next month or next quarter, but over three to five years, I think you, you it's a pretty safe way to invest. We have a question right away from Colin uh, related to to strategy, so I think we should get right to it. And he's asking, do you have a low stock turnover or does it depend on the market you face month to month? Great question. Yeah, so I'm planning to only hold somewhere between, call it seven, eight on the low end and, and maybe 15 positions on the high end, so it's highly concentrated. Uh, the ideas are mostly things that I've uh, known about or followed for five or 10 years or longer. So I tend to stick to certain sectors, like in healthcare, for example, I'll follow some of the pharma companies or some of the medical device companies for five or 10 years before I buy some of them. Um, and so in that case, no, I won't, I won't make a decision based on what's happened in the very short term, right? But what I am looking for is where can I buy really high quality companies at a reasonable price? Uh, and that's been the challenge, right? Like these tech companies are all wonderful businesses, but especially going into 2020, 2021, they were very, very expensive. It was very obvious to me that Netflix and Facebook and Shopify, and you know, if you listen to any of my podcasts from that time, I was telling people not to own those stocks. Um, you know, they were just too expensive, right? And so even now, some of those businesses are, are too expensive. Whereas if you look in healthcare, for example, some of them are quite cheap, right? They're not bad businesses. They're just, they're just not trading at a high valuation. The market doesn't seem to like them very much at the moment. Mm. So do you, if we, I imagine though that you, you have to have a macro framework that plugs in where the U.S. economy is going. Are, are you in the soft landing camp? How are you viewing things right now? I think it could go a number of different directions. And I, I've been thinking about it more in terms of like the level of the SPY, right? Because that's a really good proxy for, for kind of where the, the overall equity market is. And I feel like right around this level, like 410 to 420 is sort of a, a pivot point, right? If we go higher, 
um, then it's basically the market saying, hey, the, the Treasury general account uh, offset against the liquidity that the Fed is sort of pulling out of the system through higher rates uh, and, and quantitative tightening is being fully offset and the market can essentially go higher. Uh, remember, everybody's still employed. A lot of people still have a lot of liquidity from the pandemic era. Uh, wealthy people, of course, are doing just fine, sort of as, as typical. Um, and so I just, I don't see a huge uh, negative sort of downward impulse coming. But if we do see one, we'll probably see it over the next three to six months as the market fully prices in a recession. Um, I think we may have already been in a recession. I think we're obviously in a recession uh, in the technology space, right? Or in the crypto space, like those areas got absolutely decimated last year. Many of those stocks and assets were down 40, 60, 80, 90 plus percent. In the case of companies like Carvana, it was down like 97 or 98% at the lows. Um, so in that case, you, you basically got a depression uh, already. And so I think the, the question is not whether there's a soft landing, but what is the market already priced in? And I think the market's already sort of priced in a lot of negativity at these levels. And so I think it could go either way. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is something that comes up again and again. My colleague, uh, Andreas, just sat down with Bob Elliott for our new show, Buy Side Meet Sell Side. Uh, and he thinks a recession's coming. Let's listen to what he had to say. Typically, if you'd see, you know, 500 basis points of tightening out of a central bank over the course of a year, give or take, you would typically see that economy move into a recessionary state relatively quickly. And so the idea that, you know, probabilistically based upon how people have seen, you know, markets and economies play out, the fact that we are probably moving into a recession, I think is a, uh, is a, is a reasonable bet. It's a reasonable guess of what's likely to transpire. And that full interview is available on the website. Just scan the QR code or hit the link in the chat if you're not already a member. Uh, and also uh, put your questions in if you have any for Mike and we'll get to as many as we can. You can do that in the live chat or you can tweet us at Real Vision. Uh, it's funny, we're, we're very observant viewers, Mike, and they love the fact that you have a full bar behind you. I feel like that was really needed <laughs> last year, uh, but people are certainly feeling a little bit better about the beginning of this year, what about you though? I mean, if we have, if, if, if Bob is right and a recession is still coming, there's trouble still coming, you think stocks got a little ahead of themselves at the rally? I mean, we are down again today. We fell on Friday. Are we, are we in for a consolidation or retracement here? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Bob, Bob's right. I mean, this is the most obvious and most sort of telegraphed recession that I've ever seen. Um, it's so obvious that it's coming that I wonder if it'll even matter. Uh, to asset prices or if the asset prices have sort of fully discounted all of it. Um, and so that that's, again, if I had to worry about what the market was going to do over the next three months, I'd be white knuckling right now because there's so many cross currents in this economy that it's very, very difficult to tell what is going to be the winning factor. So will, will the S&P go up from here to 4,300, which is what all the Elliott Wave uh, folks are saying, or will it come back down to 350 kind of where it was at the lows last year will go lower. We'll go to 320 in a nasty recession. If you listen to somebody like Jeremy Grantham, he would just say on a pure kind of valuation basis with the number of uh, headwinds that we have, that that's the level that we should go to. Again, I, I, I don't know, right? And so because I don't know, I try to just buy the highest quality businesses trading at a low multiple because especially when you consider the cash flow component of that, like some of the stuff that I own right now is, is, is paying like a 7 to a 15% cash yield. 
And so really, I just, I don't even really care if the, if the security goes up a lot in price, as long as it doesn't go down a lot and I continue to, to cash that seven, eight, 10, 15% yield, because that's a good return in this environment. I think it's a great return, especially on a risk adjusted basis. Um, so if I can, if I can do that repeatedly, then I don't have to guess which direction the S&P goes next. I'll do that. Of course, if, if the market collapses 20 or 30%, I think right now I'm running at 70%, just under 70% cash, again, because it's a new fund and I haven't deployed all the capital. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Um, but if it goes up, I'm, I'll also be averaging in. It's more going to be on a time basis than on a, on a valuation basis. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And and that relates to a question from Oliver. When a stock goes down in your portfolio, do you buy more since it's a better value or do you not average down? Yeah. So look, I just finished reading um, Market Wizards, read the original <laughs> version. Uh, I just, I think it was two days ago. And then yesterday I read Reminiscences of, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And these are more like trading books, right? These are classic trading books. And it's all about uh, cutting your losses early and letting your winners run and uh, basic kind of things that traders think about, but you you, you kind of notice that Warren Buffett almost never does that, right? Like Warren Buffett buys stuff that the chart looks terrible, right? He buys it because he likes it for fundamental reasons, and then he tends to hold it. His holding uh, period is sort of forever, uh, and so I think there's a lot to be learned from those books. Like I generally don't want to average down heavy in something if there's bankruptcy risk. So th if there's idiosyncratic risk in a company, and I look at the balance sheet and I don't know because of the amount of leverage whether it can go to zero, I'll probably be more careful about averaging down. Whereas with a company with a perfect pristine balance sheet where zero is not really like the left tail is basically cut off uh, by the shape of the balance sheet, I think it's less risky to average down. Again, it comes down to holding period. If you're going to planning to hold that asset for five or 10 years, averaging down is probably a good way to bring down your average cost. So you mentioned that you consider yourself a value investor. So what, what sectors, you mentioned healthcare, um, is that still a, a top pick of yours? And what else do you like or what do you feel that you know yeah. well enough to be able to make those judgment calls? Yeah, I think healthcare is the best priced sector of the entire economy in the U.S. right now. You've got really high quality companies. Like I'm thinking of companies like Merck, right? Companies like Bristol-Myers Squibb, Medtronic. These are companies that are generally not that interesting to the average meme stock investor, retail investor, but they're trading at relatively low valuations, um, the businesses are doing fine, pretty high margins. Medtronic obviously got hit by the, by the COVID uh, period because people stopped doing as much sort of elective mm -hmm. surgeries and other things like that. But, but I think when you look out five or 10 years from a demographic standpoint, healthcare is the one industry that you know there's always going to be demand. I put healthcare up there with sort of energy and, and sort of staples, right? Like food uh, and beverages. And, and that's another sector. I love food and beverages, but like I, for example, I loved Pepsi and Procter & Gamble in 2018. Those were my two big buys in 2018, May and June. I took new positions in both of them, but I would never put new money into them now because I, I don't really, I'm not as interested in them at 25 or 26 times earnings. More interested in them at, at 15, 17, 18 times earnings. So I think it, 
kind of comes down to what kind of business can you buy at what valuation. And so energy looks still kind of interesting. My, my problem with energy is it's kind of cyclical. And if we do see a nasty recession, especially the producers, they can sell off 30, 40%. Plus, whereas if you look at like a midstream company, like I'm thinking of somebody like an enterprise product partners, EPD is the ticker. Um, you know, again, uh, it's a midstream business, like a toll booth business. And so it's really more about volumes and price. Um, something like that is trading at still a relatively low uh, multiple of cash flow. And so I think you can put that in a portfolio right now with a lot less risk than, say, Chevron or ExxonMobil. Mm. And you mentioned you you loved Pepsi and some of the consumer products earlier. You're not loving them as much now. So you hang on to them because you get the yield. What's the what's the thought process around that? So the question is like again for personal reasons or professional reasons. Like personal reasons, I generally don't like to generate taxable events, mm. right? So I will hold a stock for a long period of time as long as I still think it's a good business. Like I think Pepsi will probably compound it somewhere between seven and and eleven percent over the next call it five or 10 years. When I bought it in 2018, it was more like a 13 or 15% uh, Kager type of opportunity because it was trading at a, at a lower valuation. And so would I put it in a professionally run fund right now? No. Would I ever sell it? Probably not. Pepsi is one of the best companies in the best run companies in the world. Uh, the products, the sets, even you think of uh, brands like Gatorade, uh, for example, right? Frito-Lay, right? They're just, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're growing. Um, you know, Diageo is another one that I love. Uh, it's a little too expensive right now, but if it were to drop from where it's like 174 right now, if it were to drop down into like the 150s, I'd probably add it in. Um, I own Constellation Brands, which is the company in the U.S. that sells uh, Pacifico, Corona, Modelo. Turns out in the beer space, like beer's kind of been a crappy subsector of the alcohol industry. Spirits has been crushing uh, beer for many, many years, but um, you know, you look at a company like Diageo or Brown Foreman, when they get cheap enough, when I say cheap enough for Diageo, it might be 20 times earnings. And for Brown Foreman, it might be 25 times earnings. They're actually great businesses to own. They're relatively sort of demand and elastic, sort of like tobacco, right? People just continue to consume them sort of no matter what the price is. Yeah. And you do go through phases. I think bourbon is the big one now. I have a feeling we have some bourbon drinkers who are listening based on the keen eye on your bar. Uh, G. Blackburn, I wanted to say Gary, I don't even know if that's right, but G. Blackburn asking 70% cash. Did I hear that right? That's not bullish. But I think it's because you just started and you haven't had a chance yeah, to this enjoy is, it Yeah, this is just for the fun. I'm 100% allocated personally outside of the Alpine Fox. And I'm planning to sort of average in scale into some positions over, call it a month to six months, right? Because I have a three-year hard lock. Um, it's very unusual terms, by the way, for a first-time manager. I, I've negotiated very hard for that, but I have a three-year hard lock. And so essentially, I don't have to worry about performance uh, until the first quarter of 2026. And so again, my focus is what can I buy over the next, call it three to six to nine months even, that I can hold over that holding period and generate you know, good returns. And so, yeah, I don't want to put, uh, I don't want to put tens of millions of dollars into the market right now and then have the S&P sell down 30% uh, in the first year. That would be a really dumb thing to do as a professional manager. But obviously, personally, I, I'm not too concerned with that. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're definitely interested in keeping some powder dry mm -hmm. as you look around to deploy. Uh, Paul asking about utilities. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, utilities are are great when you're kind of going into a recessionary period. I think we sort of entered the recessionary period, candidly, in the Q3, Q4 of 2021. That's when um, the market started to price in higher rates, particularly in Q4. 
and and those high flying tech stocks, the meme stocks, the SPACs, cryptocurrencies, they all started to sell off of that. Um, and so that was a time where I would have been interested maybe in owning Duke Energy or something like that at that time. Across a full cycle, though, I'm not particularly excited about that business model versus like what I can get with other infrastructure businesses like like Bitcoin miners, right? And so again, Bitcoin is a subsector of, of what I cover, but the Bitcoin mining businesses were trading um, just a month ago. They were trading like they were all going to go to zero. And the most uh, interesting analogy for that is the internet data center businesses back in 2001, 2002. So if you think back to that time coming out of the dot-com uh, crash, companies like Equinix were trading at like $3 a share. You know, And later, of course, over the course of 15, 18 years, that stock went up 200, 300x. Really, it was, a, it was just a binary bet on the future of the internet. Like if you thought the internet had a future, you wanted to be long the infrastructure businesses that were supporting the internet. If you think Bitcoin has a future coming off the bottom here at 15, 16K last month or in December, then you probably want to own the, the infrastructure businesses supporting the growth of the Bitcoin network. Um, and so I would prefer to put a dollar into a HUD-8 or a Cypher or something like that over uh, a utility business or a traditional internet data center business because I just think the returns are going to be lower over the next three years. And again, there'll be volatile stocks. Um, but if you want exceptional returns, you have to fish in those areas. And Ralph was asking about Bitcoin miners. Are you concerned about uh, that some have declared bankruptcy? I know you just said they're volatile, but do you are you concerned about companies that you think are good companies getting swept up in some of what we're seeing, the, the fallout or the contagion uh, in the industry? No, and the reason is simple. For the most part, the high-quality uh, real infrastructure developers are really not involved or engaged in any way with any of these offshore platforms that have blown up. Right. And so I could speak directly to this. I'm on the board of a NASDAQ listed uh, Bitcoin miner. The ticker is IRS, is IREN. It's called Iris Energy. It's actually an Australian domiciled company, but all of our facilities are in uh, uh, British Columbia, in Canada. We have three operating facilities there, one new one coming online in Texas. The business is really just an infrastructure business. The company buys land, the company builds buildings, the company buys computing equipment, the company plugs that computing equipment. Uh, into a power source, uh, runs the the machines and generates Bitcoin, and then they sell the Bitcoin every day at the market price. So they're no different than somebody mining any other asset. They don't carry any Bitcoin on the balance sheet. They have no daily exposure to any counterparties. They just make Bitcoin every day in Canada and sell it in the open market. Um, and so the value is just, what's the value of that infrastructure in terms of its ability to generate revenue over the next three, five, seven years? And I think the market is dramatically underpricing the value of those infrastructure assets in the same way it was dramatically undervaluing the value of Aquinix's infrastructure assets in 2002. And again, this is still a very contrarian. It's why I'm so confident that it's a good idea. It's highly contrarian. Bitcoin is still contrarian. But then if you don't understand Bitcoin, you wouldn't understand why you would ever build data centers uh, to mine it. Um, but I think it's a quite interesting opportunity. And you own Bitcoin as well, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can go up to 40% of the fund. Uh, in Bitcoin. Of course, personally, I own millions of dollars of Bitcoin. So, And what is your outlook? Uh, we've seen a big rally to start the year, but do you expect it to be correlated with risk assets in the way it was last year? Is, is that an issue for you at all? Or, or because of your time horizon, you're just confident on, on its sort of ability and function and will ride the waves of volatility? Yeah, the second one, you kind of, you kind of hit it. I mean, if you do enough fundamental work on Bitcoin, the really the only bet you're making is does it survive? 
because what tends to happen is if it survives across two, three, five, seven year periods, again, we don't have a lot of uh, time periods to judge this on, but but based on the structure of it, I'm highly confident that it will probably be around in five or 10 years. And if it's around in five or 10 years, its inflation schedule is known because it's algorithmic and dictated by code, whereas the Fed's uh, money printing scheme is sort of unknown. It's a it's a known unknown. We, we know it's going to happen. We just know how bad it's going to be. We don't know how many dollars are going to be printed. We don't know how much debasement is going to take place. We don't know how much inflation is going to happen. But we do know there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. So to me, it's just a simple math problem. It's a scarce asset. As long as there's demand, uh, fundamental demand for the asset, the price will go up. And that demand is actually coming from the emerging world in large part. That's where you see real fundamental demand. In the Western world, it's primarily speculation. Mm. It's investment managers. It's traders. It's people who like to watch a chart and see a chart that shows volatility and say, wow, this reminds me of corn or cotton or you know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. It reminds me of silver or gold. Um, and I can trade it. But in the emerging world, people are literally trying to outrun monetary debasement, right? Their, their central banks are just stealing their money, essentially. And so they buy it for those fundamental reasons. As long as that continues, Bitcoin's probably going to go up in price. And if it is, there are a bunch of ancillary businesses like Coinbase or like Iris Energy that'll probably go up over time as well. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, we have a question from ZS. Will Bitcoin allocation change over halving cycles or adoption more broadly? Say again. Will Bitcoin's allocation change over halving cycles or adoption more broadly? Is he saying for me, will my Bitcoin allocation? I'm not sure. It wasn't clear. Maybe you can make that clear as yes. But what, what are you thinking about in terms of adoption? Is that an issue? We saw institutions get involved mm-hmm. and then they pulled back. And, you know, there is the thought that they're kind of waiting in the wings, uh, you know, as well now. Does that matter to your thesis? I mean, look, BlackRock is all over this, right? <laughs> but BlackRock is is coming into space in a, in a major way. Um, you know, look, there's going to be there's going to be pauses in adoption in the, in the U.S., whenever there are regulatory issues, right? Or whenever there are sort of market events like we just had last year, whenever an asset falls 60, 70, 80%, there's carnage, right? There's carnage in a lot of different places. All the frauds are revealed. All the Ponzi schemes are revealed. We just saw, we just saw that. That has nothing to do with the operations of the Bitcoin protocol itself. It has to do with the centralized entities that are trading in the space. And so I don't, I don't think that really matters in the long run. I think over, again, over a three, five, seven year period, you can kind of just draw a line and it's kind of up and to the right to, to, to be simple and plain, but it's just up and to the right and it shows you kind of where the adoption is going. And if it continues like that, then the price will sort of follow along. So we have a couple of questions. Uh, they're great questions today, everyone, by the way. And obviously a lot of people consider themselves, I think, uh, you know, this time horizon matches up with some of what they're doing, whether it's personally or professionally. And so they have a lot of questions about how you think about this. Uh, one of them is, do you get frustrated if you find a great value company, but its share performance is poor and refuses to participate in the markets? I tend to like that um, because it gives you more time to accumulate 
the the stock, right? And so if if it's a, if it truly is a great company, and as you continue to underwrite and re-underwrite it, you can't find any reason why there's something wrong with it, then you should probably add more, right? If you're a value investor, like I can give you a good example: CVS in 2018 and 2019 kind of went into the tank. It was bouncing around in the low 50s, right? It was like seven, eight times earnings. B- BMY did this as well around the same time. Bristol Myers Squibb. It was bouncing around in the low to mid 40s. It's when I acquired a large stake in both of them at that time. And they mostly didn't recover right away. They would recover a little bit and then trade back back down. And every time they would dip back down, I would just continue to add because as long as I saw in the earnings trajectory, I saw an improving business in both cases, I didn't have any real concern. So over a full cycle, like a five, seven or nine, 11 year type of time horizon, right? Like the earnings tend to guide the prices back to where they're supposed to be. And so if you get a long period of time to continue to add to a great company at a low price, I'd say continue investing. It it doesn't tend to bother me that much. Yeah. And you're not chasing it. Uh, Also a question about does tangible book value fit into your process? Yeah. To to the extent at which the the business has, um, you know, hard assets, right? I remember a a big uh, increasing chunk of the S and P, when you think about the underlying value is coming from IP across time. Like we can just see that in the data, like Google, the value isn't because they own some building in Hudson Yard or something in New York, the value is in the algorithms, the values in the data, the values in the software, the values in the code, the intellectual property and the, and the people. Um, and so to the extent at which you're investing in technology or technology driven businesses, it can be challenging if you have to be so tethered to kind of a traditional uh, property plan equipment kind of, uh, item in the balance sheet, right? Because up until kind of the technology industry really took off in the US, that would have been a primary way that you would know you were getting value. You could still kind of do that from time to time. Like I'll give you an example. HUD8 was a company that I own that, you know, was it went down a lot last year, but sometime in December, I was doing Twitter spaces. I kept pointing out to people, the stock was trading at 80 or 85 cents and they had like 75 cents of cash and Bitcoin in the balance sheet. Plus they have a bunch of operating uh, facilities, right? And so I was looking at that and I'm saying, the market's basically saying that this business has no value, right? Because if you liquidated the whole thing right now, you would have the entire share price in, in cash and Bitcoin. And so you can still find that even in the tech space, but you have to look kind of for situations that are kind of deeply depressed, like like we saw at the in December in crypto. Crypto was just in the depression phase. Mm. I think it just kind of popped out of it over the last month. You're talking a lot about Bitcoin. Do you do you look at other areas of crypto, ETH, or any companies that are associated with building out infrastructure for the metaverse or anything like that? I try not to go too far away from Bitcoin just because I think Bitcoin's the only asset that's proven that it'll still be around in 20 years. Uh, Ethereum is still an experimental project. They keep changing the, the, the code. They keep changing the rules. Over time, I own some personally, just as a speculation, I bought the most recent round, I bought it like $300 uh, a few years ago. So I have like a, a pretty small position. Personally, I, I don't think I'm going to put it in the fund just because it doesn't really fit the the mandate. And then beyond that, I think the metaverse is still a show me story. Like we actually need to see viable use cases for some of this stuff. Like I think Mark Zuckerberg candidly kind of put his stock into the toilet by doing this huge pivot in there. And I think he might've just been a little bit too early. Um, it may still be a material thing, but I don't think I need to bet on things like that to make a lot of money. Yeah, and too early is hard because you can go bankrupt when you're waiting for the timing to adjust itself, as we know. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, Mike. And you know, as I'm listening, my takeaway is that 
uh, we're back to you make a compelling case that we're back to a, a period where active management is going to count. And from listening to you, it's clear that you drill down and understand these companies well. And when you see value and you see a, a, an attractive yield, you're kind of willing to hold it regardless of some of the short-term gyrations. That's right. And I think if you use high yield equity as a bond allocation, um, you're going to do much better over the next five years than just holding uh, bonds. Now, of course, if the interest rates start falling dramatically, bonds could go up uh, quite a lot, but that's just not something I want to bet on. I'd rather bet on growth in energy or growth in healthcare and use that to get an above average yield uh, versus betting on somebody paying back uh, a note, uh, you know, the U.S. government or some corporation. So I, I think you want to bet on you want to bet on the industries that have nice tailwinds going. But I think that's energy, healthcare, and a few others, and some of the infrastructure around Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a no brainer. But again, for for me, that's going to be probably no more than ten to twenty percent of the portfolio. I think it needs to be size right uh, because the stocks can go down a lot in a, in a nasty recession. Yeah. And even if you have a long time horizon, that's still hard. That's still hard to, mm-hmm. to see happen. Mike, fantastic stuff. This was so interesting. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the fund. Thank you, Maggie. We will see you again soon. I hope thanks to all of you for watching and the great questions. We'll be back with you tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.